I appreciate the songs today. And in a little bit, we're going to hear another song that's really well known to us. Speaks about a time when, when uh, sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say. It is well, it is well with my soul. And I hope that's true for all of you today. That you're encouraged in the fact that the Lord has done great things and is still doing great things. And uh, we anticipate that uh, the day will come when we shall see him face to face. If that doesn't give you joy, I don't know what will. Today we are uh, looking outside. It's Hillsdale, Oklahoma, and it's gray out there because we've had some rain, which we must have needed. We've had a lot of rain. But it's been raining here this morning, and it's kind of gray outside. And uh, it's a little darker inside because the sun's not shining through. And all that says that this is the perfect time to do Revelation chapter 17. Because if this was your birthday, or the sun was shining, or your favorite team just won the World Series, it's going to be harder to adjust to this chapter. But being gloomy and everything pressing in as they are, chapter 17 is going to feel better. I don't know how, but you will find out. Um, Actually, it is a very hard chapter to have studied, to prepare for you today. And um, I just say, buckle your seatbelts, folks. Here we go. Uh, Let's start with a word of prayer. How's that? Good idea. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're present with us and you are at work in our life. And... uh, The last chapters have already been written. When we stand in your presence, we shall see you as you are, and we shall be like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, what a beautiful thing you've done for us. We long for that. Today we're going to study your word, and yes, there are chapters in your book that are hard chapters. And yet, you wrote them for a reason. And I hope that in all this we are encouraged and know that for truly it is well with our soul. And we thank you for that. Help us today to comprehend what's before us and in the end to give you the praise. That's what we want to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now, as you have already seen, working your way through the book of Revelation, there are some parts of it we really, really love. We look forward to it, and everybody wants to have a good study of the end times, and uh, most of that's because we look forward to good things. But there are some terrible things that are in the end times, too, and they're in this book. And really, chapter 12 through 18 is a very difficult section to go through, very difficult section. Chapters 12 through 15, which we've already covered, uh, has been giving us the big picture and the big picture in this is that Satan has desired and has attempted to destroy God's plans, especially for Israel. And he works very hard during the tribulation period to do that very thing. That's why these chapters are really, really, really tough. But I keep insisting that we keep them in context. That's very, very important for accurate Bible study. 
It's important as you're getting into the depths of these chapters that we keep it to the context so we know what we're actually seeing. We are studying the events of the tribulation period. From heaven's view, this is judgment. Judgment, judgment, judgment. And you've felt that, I'm sure. We started that in chapter 4. And the judgments carry all the way through chapter 19. That's a big chunk of the book is like that. Vast majority of it. And, and it is it, from chapter 4 on, it's explaining history that is yet to come. I'm going to say this very specifically. I call it history not because it's already happened. There are some who think that. But that's not the case. But I have the confidence that whatever God says will happen, will happen. All right? So as far as I'm concerned, you could write it in the history books now, even though it hasn't occurred, because that's going to happen. These are not maybes. These are realities, even though they haven't happened. So be aware of this. Um, We... Here in the year 2020, are coming closer and closer and closer to the events that we're reading of here in Revelation, especially chapter 16, 17, and 18. These days are coming soon. I believe that nothing needs to happen to instigate the rapture. You know that? It could happen today. Wouldn't that be great? No more masks. Off we go. That would be super. It could be today. But according to the progression of what Scripture tells us, the rapture occurs, the tribulation starts after that. Whether it's days or weeks or months, I can't give you that date because he never told us that. But the tribulation comes after the rapture. And in reality, if the rapture should occur today... The tribulation's right on the heels of that somewhere. That means these events are about to take place, if that should be the case. I'm not predicting anything, okay? I won't do that. But I do know it's reality that he's coming for us. And it could be today. This is what we understand from God's word. And it's very important for the church to know it. That's why it's in the book of Revelation. That's why it's given to the church. It's important for us to know these things, for even though our experience will not be the same as those who go through the tribulation period, praise the Lord for that, we need the confidence to know, number one, God is sovereign. Number two, God is in control. Number three, God is trustworthy. Number four, He will keep all His promises. And number five, he is holy. Those things are before us in this book. And they keep coming up before us. And when people say, what is theology? It's, it's a study of God. And Revelation is full of the knowledge of our God. If we would take the look as we should at it. The final chapters of this book uh, records the values of studying all these things. Do you know that? We're looking forward to the last couple of chapters, I know. But in chapter 22, verse number 7, it says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. 
Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, that doesn't say, blessed is he who reads, but he who heeds. Is there a difference? Yes. To heed, the Greek word tereo, great little word. To guard it, to keep it, to hold it fast. I pulled up a, a list of synonyms to that. To heed something is to pay attention to it. To listen to it, to take notice of, to follow it, to mark it, to mind it, to consider it, to note it, to regard it, to attend it, to observe it, to obey it, to bear in mind, to be guided by it, to take it to heart, to give ear to it. Did you memorize that list? It's on the quiz. No? Let me try it this way. The study that we're in is not just to satisfy curiosity, because that's primarily what people want to study eschatology for in times. They're just, they just have to be scratched all the time at that itchy spot called curiosity. What's going to happen? But our study is to actually instigate a reaction This is the nature of heeding. If Jesus says, I am coming quickly, what should the church do in taking that to heart? Let it get our attention. Let it take notice in our mind. Let us regard it. Let us obey Him. Let us be guided by these things. Let us take it to heart. These are real words, aren't they? He's coming, right? So as we read these things, you say, but, but pastor, you're in a hard chapter and it doesn't seem to pertain to us. Yeah, welcome to chapter 17. It's a hard chapter. But we should take these things to heart. Because our Lord tells us to. Chapter 16, we went through that last week and that was a hard chapter too. I think it was hard because of the horrors of chapter 16. It was just absolutely horrible to read these things that are going to happen to our world. Chapter 17 is perhaps the grossest chapter, if I want to use that word. It's not pleasant, folks. It is not a pleasant chapter. It is what I like to think of as the full blossom of sin revealed, and the whole earth is consumed by it. Now I've got your curiosity, don't I? Usually I, I read through the whole chapter first and then explain it today. I'm just going to outline it as I go. All right? And there's a, there's a method to my madness today to do it this way. Because when we have to lay this out, the speculation on this chapter is all over the board. It's everywhere. And I don't want to do that. I just want to say it for what it is. All right? So, start with me in the first couple of verses here. This is what I call item number one. It's the invitation to see judgment. It's a judgment that we're about to see. Remember, this message was being given to John the Apostle. 
and he's writing down what he is observing. He was told way back in chapter 1, write in a book what you see and send it to the churches. That was chapter 1, verse 11. And so we go into chapter 17, and one of the angels, verse number 1, who had the seven bowls, remember we met those last week, there were seven of them with seven bowls, and they were all judgments, and they were terrible judgments. The, one of those angels came and spoke with John. It says, and he came and spoke with me, saying, Come here. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now, I'm aware that you have different translations out there today, and you might have a different word for what John has just used, what you're about to see. I'll tell you honestly, there are no words that make it prettier. All right? No matter what word you have in there, harlot, prostitute, or worse than that, uh, the Amplified Version just said, idolatrous. And I said, well, okay, they tried to, to calm it down a little bit. But that's not an uncommon figure in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. God frequently described his own people being involved in idolatry. And he equated it to immoral things. Matter of fact, the whole book of Hosea is based on that theme, if you recall. Now, John is witnessing this scene, and this harlot sits on many waters, and it says, and the kings of the earth commit immorality with her. Verse number two. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. That's John's view that he was invited to see. He starts to develop the scene a little bit more in verse 3 through 6. And it's very descriptive in that nature. And Mark, again, um, I'm not going to interpret any of these things. I'm just going to write them or say them for what they are. John didn't interpret at this point either. He just observed the facts. All right? Item number two starts in verse three, goes through verse number six. A description is now given. All right? He first saw the site, and now he's given the description in this passage. And he carried me away, verse three, in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, that's not the woman, that's the beast. It is one ugly beast. The description of blasphemous names is all about that beast. You can see that. That, to me, is, is just as ugly as can be, right there. When you're using blasphemous names, you're talking about my God. You're talking about my Lord. You're using the ugliest terms you possibly can to talk about him. And when I see that, I just kind of cringe, don't you? To say, oh, this beast has those names all over him. He has seven heads. He has ten horns. This is what the, is first mentioned. It's talking about the beast. And the color of the beast was scarlet. We can mark that too. So far... All we know about the woman is she's sitting on the beast. All right? In these passages right here, she's sitting on the beast. 
So they talked about the beast for a minute, and we'll come back to the beast in again. But verse number 4 says, Now the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. Now, I don't think we need to embellish that, all right? I just put the word yuck in the margin, that's theologically sound, and move on. It's like, ah, that's not pretty. John also noticed that she has something written on her forehead in verse number 5. And on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, we're going to use that later on when we get into interpretation, when we get there. We just note, John just says, I saw that on her forehead. More about her. Verse number six. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. Not only is this gross, but this is heart-wrenching. You know what you just read? You know what you just saw? The blood mentioned here belongs to our future brothers and sisters in faith. Apparently, there will be so many dying for their faith during this time. Now, just a side note, just a thought. But praise the Lord, they had such a testimony that they were identified as belonging to him. I ask you this today, just in thought. You put it to heart. Does the word saint or witness of Jesus, is that said of you by those on the outside? Are you so identifiable that people can identify you like these people are going to be identified in that day? Do people know that you're a saint by calling? Do people know that you're a witness of Jesus? When I was in high school, I went to a public high school, a big one. There were 600 in my graduating class. So it was a long graduation ceremony. Uh, but in that uh, high school, it wasn't, it wasn't the thing to be known as a Christian. So I kept quiet. I'll be honest with you. I kept quiet about it. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't want to be teased. I didn't want to be singled out. I didn't want to be marked as that strange person that goes to church. Oh, my neighborhood knew it. I'd go to the bus every morning and, and the neighborhood boys would try to make me say bad words or do something wrong because they just wanted to see if I could. And they, it bothered them that we went to church Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night, especially if we were in the middle of a baseball game, and the call would come out back and say, it's time to go to church. And you could see them groan and grunt, and we did too. But I was a incognito Christian as best I could. I did my best that nobody would know. These people here, we just read about their fate on earth, not in heaven. But well, we read about their fate. But I stand back and say, but what were they martyred about? 
people knew, knew that they wore the name of Christ. And I wonder if that would still be true for us today. Do people know that you're a believer? Do they know it? I'll let you work on that one. All right? Back to our study. John was invited to see these things. He got an eyeful of something that left him absolutely without understanding. Notice the last words of verse number 6. He says, I was amazed. I was astonished. I I marveled at this. There's different words for that translation. But it was a great wonder. He stood there and he saw this view and tried to explain it to us. He says, what is this? What is this? So item three. The rest of the chapter. Explanation of what John got to see. Our goal here is still to let the passage speak for itself. Chapter 17, verse 7. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery. Excuse me. The mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Both the woman and the beast have an explanation, and you're about to hear it. We start with the ugly beast, okay? Verse number three said, It was a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. So now you go to verse eight to get the rest. The beast that you saw was, and is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. That helped, didn't it? This is not Dr. Seuss, is it? No. The beast was in existence. They all use the verb emi in the Greek, so it's about existence. The beast was in existence. The beast currently is not in existence. The beast will be back in existence. And the beast will come out of the abyss. And right there I wrote in my notes, Nothing that crawls out of the abyss is good news. (laughs) Think of that. How many people say, oh, I can't wait for the abyss to empty something out in my yard. No, that's an ugly concept. It came out of the abyss and will ultimately go to destruction. The timing of these things pertain to the tribulation period. Those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, clearly that's unbelievers, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. So even those who live on this earth will look at that and say, huh, what is this? Let's keep going with the description, we'll come back. Seven heads and ten horns. Now, he says in verse number nine, here is a mind which has wisdom. That's right there. It stops me and I say, "Uh uh-oh, I don't get it. So what does that mean? (laughs) If this is wisdom and I don't get it, what do we do with this? It says the seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits. Okay. Right here, folks, this is where imagination starts to fly. It really does. Most of the commentaries in conservative theological circles, anyway, and maybe even your study Bible would say, this concerns the Roman Empire. 
It's usually said that way. Seven mountains after all, right? Seven mountains of Rome. They talk about it that way. And then some people add, nope, 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 it's the seven emperors of Rome. And they start naming these emperors uh, as verse 10 would suggest that they're seven kings. So they must be emperors. And so they go from that to try to put names to them and historical sections to them and all these other factors. And that's what they do typically once this verse is read in verse number 9. Because suddenly heads have become mountains and seven heads are seven mountains and the seven mountains are, verse number 10, seven kings. All right, that helped too, didn't it? We went from seven heads to seven mountains to seven kings. Five of them have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. You got it so far? Okay. Now, add this verse, number 11. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is one of the seven. And he goes to destruction. Okay, now we went from seven to eight and now we're back to seven, but the seventh is the eighth. Got it? Generally, really, I told you. Current commentators go after this and say, well, it's, it must be the revived Roman Empire. It, it must be the Antichrist is being referenced here as a beast, perhaps. And they go with that and they just fly through that and say, that's the answer. The reality is the text doesn't say all that. That's what we put onto it because of what we cite in history. What we say, well, it has to be that way. Remember, John was astonished about this. He needed explanation about this. And I know we are very good at speculating about history. We do pretty good with speculating about prophecy, too. But ultimately, the ones who will experience this will know what this is. Because if we base it on what we have right now... We're going to assume that the world order that we're used to and the players that are in existence today and the people that we mark in history must be the answer. What if none of that has been fulfilled yet and will be fulfilled in the next thousand years and if the rapture is after that? You see? Why do I say all that? Because many times the woman, I'll get it just a side view here for a minute. The woman is identified as what? The false church. In the 1500s, she was identified as the Catholic Church. In the mid-1980s or so, many of the commentators came out and said, no, it must be Islamic. And so they have been adjusting the terminology based on the present history. And that's been going on for 500 years. And I say, John never said it that way. And it's interesting to me because if we're going to put it all in one box and say it must be this, it must be that, then what if it's not? What if there is another name or another history or another group of people that are yet not on the horizon? I like the fact that this passage is not good news. I know that. 
but it is for those who will experience the tribulation. We won't be here. Some people say, but the Antichrist, he's got to come from this country or that country or something. We won't know. It's not for us. We won't be here. All I know is there's seven heads to this beast, which are seven mountains, which I don't understand perfectly, which are seven kings, and I say, oh, I could understand a little bit about that, but one of those sevens becomes the eighth, and it's still one of the seven. And I said, well, that's kind of puzzling. And so I said, what can you help me with? And it says, let's talk about the horns. I said, oh, that sounds easier. Ten horns. What else? Well, everything practically that's yet to go is about the ten horns. Verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. They receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Again, I say, don't speculate on who the ten kings are, because that's not going to happen until the tribulation period. We don't know who they are. But this verse 13 says something very important. These have one purpose. Now, we're going to talk about that in a minute. He's going to say other things first. But hold this thought. These have one purpose. These ten horns have one purpose. First of all, verse 13 says that they give their power and authority to the beast. Is that what it says? All right. They give their power and they give their authority to the beast. And, verse 14, these will wage war against the Lamb. And the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. Folks, you just read great news. Right in the middle of all this stuff, let me give you a reminder. Jesus is Lord and always will be. Jesus is King and Jesus is victorious. Okay? That's good to know. Okay, back to the picture. Verse 15. What about the waters? And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are people and multitudes and nations and tongues. So we have the ten horns and the beast, and we have a sudden change of plans. Verse 16. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot, and will make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh, and will burn her up with fire. Back to the purpose. What is the purpose from verse 13? It's right here in verse 17. Watch it. God has put in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose, and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. Ultimately, the goal is that the kingdoms of this world will all submit to the kingdom of the beast. Even the woman will be destroyed for this purpose. This woman will be destroyed for that purpose. To give all authority and all power to the beast. The one. The woman who you saw is the great city, verse 18 says, which reigns over the kings of the earth. 
take you back to verse 5 for a second. Remember she had a name on her forehead? Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. Chapter 18 will add more to that story. But I want to give you some insight here. I think as I sifted through this material, this is what I come up with. You ready? Number one, there is obviously a struggle for control and power during the tribulation period. There is a struggle. We know that this world is still struggling for power and control, don't we? It will be highly amplified in that day. We see that. Number two, there will be a unified submission to the power of the woman at first. But after a time, what she represents will be destroyed by another system of rulers who will eventually give their power to a single individual supporting and strengthening the sole ruler to control all the peoples and all the nations of the world. Does that make sense? That's chapter 17 in a nutshell. We have this woman controlling a lot and slowly these others taking it away from her and giving it to the one to the point that she's destroyed in the process. Number three, I note, to gain these things, there will have to be a compromise. A compromise. Basically, for what is right, they will give in to immorality. That's what we saw at the start. They will compromise truth and right so that they can have unity. There will be murder of God's righteous witnesses. There will be a unified mentality that the future of Babylon must be dealt with. That's what she represents. I, I know very well commentators are full of the fact that this is the church. This is the apostate church. This is the artificial church. This is an ungodly church. It's led by the false prophet and it's going to be destroyed. Number one. Revelation 4 through all these chapters never mention a church. They never do. They talk about worship. They talk about the Antichrist being worshipped. And we know the false prophet's going to instigate that. It doesn't have to be a church. We put church in there because that's what we think. That's what we know. We say, well, of course it's got to be a church. Where is the church going to be? Up in heaven. If you take the church out of the world, what's left? It's not church. Let me, let me give you a simple picture. If in our day and age, a virus can keep a lot of people from congregating together, what happens when the believers are gone? How likely are they going to say, let's get together and sing? <laughs> Let's get together and do... They, they will have worship. And you say, but it's going to be destroyed. Well, it's never called the church, and it's never mentioned about worship. And what's interesting is, is if the false prophet is the one leading it, why is he still there in chapter 19? He's not fired. He's not somehow excused from his position in, in the, the cabinet of the Antichrist. 
He's going to be there at the very end, right beside the Antichrist. And if he's a leader of their worship services, then this must not be their worship. (laughs) You see where I'm trying to take you? This is something, I believe, other than what we call a fake church. Because it has to do with political power. It has to do with ruling over people. It has to do with something that the Antichrist considers to be a threat to himself, and he's going to take it over. And everything I've seen through the study of these things is that we're talking about a a system, a political system of sorts, where, yes, ungodly people are part of it, but the enterprise is for political control. To control the worlds. And that's why it fits better into chapter 18 as well. We separate those two and most commentators say, well, this is the false church in chapter 17 and this is the economic world in chapter 18 when they're both called Babylon. Hmm. Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great. Both chapters. I think it's the same in the in system and that's what I go with anyway is that whatever this is, The emphasis seems to be more on political control. And ultimately, it will destroy anything that gets in its way. And that's what the Antichrist does. He destroys, he destroys, he destroys for his own gain. And that's why I don't like to interpret scripture according to the newspaper. (laughs) Just let it say what it says. Without reading into it, without coming up with other ideas because of what we know today. But this, to me, is, is what I think is political in nature. And yet, I still have a favorite part. Verse number 14. This, or these, will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. Because He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. I love that phrase. They don't identify the Lord as a lion. They don't identify him as a warrior of Israel. They don't use those terms like the conqueror. They call him the lamb. Isn't that cool? The lamb. The lamb overcame them. Because he is. Mark this. I underlined it so I would never miss these words. He is Lord of Lords. Now he will be. Do you know he is now? Right now? He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. And you say, well, what's happening here? Chapter 19. They'll tell you what's happening there. By the way, I believe you and I are in the rest of that verse, 14. We'll get to that. Now I've piqued your curiosity. There are two great blessings in this chapter. I want to bring this to this point on purpose. Because you just heard it, and I just read it, and I, I do my little speculation too. But I set this before you just as it's written. And there are two blessings in this chapter that I note. Number one, God is executing his purpose in these things. He is fulfilling his word in these things. I love to read passages that say, just as he said. I love those phrases. 
Because that's what it is. You and I know it's true. And we read these things, and Peter would say, in the last days, the mockers will come, and they're going to mock the Lord and say, He never keeps His promises. Let's not be numbered with them. Read what God has said, and believe what God has said. That's those who heed the words of this prophecy. They listen to it. Believe it. That's one of the blessings I see here. I love the fact that God is in control. His purpose will be fulfilled. Second thing I love is the fact that it brought up my Savior. Our Lord will overcome. I love that phrase. There's no question about that to me. Hopefully not for you either. It has been said over and over and over and over in Scripture. And yet, we're the kind who still fret and we still fear and we read the headlines and we watch political movements going on in our land and we see the normal way of our life being changed and we don't like it, do we? We see things shifting under our feet like sand and we don't like that either. We need to remind ourselves of something. We are citizens of heaven. And we have a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He has overcome. We need that reminder. We need to come back to the fact that He is Lord, and He is King, and no one is greater than Him. No one. That's a sweet verse in the middle of an ugly chapter. Mark it, folks. That is what we need to remember. Here's what I, I want to close with. This psalm. Listen carefully to it. If you want to see it, it's Psalm 2. But I really just want you to listen. Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar? The people devising a vain thing. The kings of this earth take their stand against the rulers. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And they say, let us tear their feathers apart and let us cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. Listen to this. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Aren't those sweet words at the very end? How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Heavenly Father, when we wade through a passage like this, as, as ugly, as challenging it is, the thing we know for sure 
is that our God is in control and our Savior is Lord. And I pray that that becomes an anchor for us, not just because we live in some troubling times and difficult situations, but because this is the reality of all that it is for a believer in Christ Jesus. We know that every single day has been made by you. Every single day has been fashioned according to your will. Every single thing follows through with your plans. We don't always understand that, but we do have a great God, and we certainly love to read how you love us. And to read of our Savior, who is Lord, who is King. He's the one we serve. He's the one we're being shaped to be like. He's the one we shall be with forever and ever and ever. As believers, we could even read a passage like this and find the jewels in the middle of it that encourage our hearts and lift us up before the throne and causes us to yell out with a mighty voice, praise the Lord for what you have done. We long for the day when we shall see our Savior. Until then, Lord, may we be numbered among the righteous here on this earth. May the world see it and know that we belong to Jesus. Because we do. And we praise you, Lord, for who you are for what you've done. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.